I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the latest in Ukraine, we have with us again the one, the only, Dr. Seth Jones, head of CSIS's International Security Program, our Harold Brown chair, and a senior VP at CSIS. Seth, thanks so much for being back with us. Andrew, it is great to be back. Thanks for having me on. Seth, I want to ask you first, how is the United States helping Ukraine other than with military aid and maybe some strategic advice? What, what are we doing to really help them? Well, Andrew, since the beginning of the war, there is the warning side of intelligence, which is providing information, including to the public, on the Russian buildup, the types of weapons systems that the Russians were moving forward close to the Ukrainian border, both in Russia and in Belarus, also highlighting and declassifying intelligence on individuals that the Russians were considering if they overthrew Zelensky, replacing him with, so a puppet government. Also intelligence on particularly timelines of of how and when the Russians might invade Ukraine. Since then, there have been a number of indications that the United States has provided intelligence about Russian units, Russian movements, and other Russian activity. There has also been some leaks in the press from unnamed U.S. government sources that some intelligence that the U.S. has provided has led to the death of Russian general officers, as well as potentially to the sinking of the Moskva, the Russian flagship in the Black Sea. Andrew, I would say it's one thing for the U.S. to provide warning publicly and to declassify information, but when it comes to leaks about the death of Russian soldiers or sinking of Russian ships that may contribute to the death of Russian sailors, That is not something I think that American policymakers should be saying out loud, should be leaking to the press. And the reason we're seeing this is that this has been a dominant theme now in the Russian press and communicated to the Russian population, is that this is not anymore about Ukraine. This is about the West. This is about the United States and NATO. And it comes along the lines of even statements from the U.S. Secretary of Defense that the objective is to weaken the Russian military. I would just say, you know, my own judgment is the focus of effort should be on the Ukrainians and what the Ukrainians are doing. I think there's a lot of concern about escalation the more the U.S. tries to publicly claim credit for activity. So if these reports are true and U.S. intelligence has led to the killing of Russian generals, the sinking of Russian ships, as you point out, this is pretty remarkable. And would some believe, represent an escalation, wouldn't it? Well, I think there are three issues at stake here that risk escalation. One is, and probably most important, there are a lot of dead Russian soldiers now. Uh, Over 15,000, right? Over 15,000, at least. That's the bottom end of the assessments right now. So if we multiply that by a, a factor of three, we generally assume roughly a factor of one to three, one individual killed for three wounded. So if you multiply that by three, you're up at about 45,000. So casualties. Extraordinary number. Out of a force size that was deployed of 190,000 or so, that's an extraordinary number. And just to put that into historical perspective, we're now most likely more Russian soldiers killed in two and a half months of fighting in Ukraine 
than during the entire 10-year period the Russians were deployed to Afghanistan, and four times the number of combined U.S. fatalities in Iraq and Afghanistan over a 20-year period. So that's point one. Well, and it's no wonder that the Russians are then trying to define this as a proxy war between the West and them and tell their people that the U.S. is trying to weaken us, echoing Secretary Austin's statements. So, you know, they have a compelling case to make because they've lost so many people. They have to mask that somehow and save face with their people in Russia, right? Yeah, this is this is where they're increasingly putting the blame. So... The second issue is there is what I would call almost sort of gloating now uh, by some U.S. officials, at least privately, that I think is counterproductive. And in addition to that, we have a third issue, which is on the horizon, which is the likely inclusion this year of Sweden and Finland into NATO, which would be further expansion of NATO eastward and with the case of Finland in particular, also along the Russian border. So you add all of those elements together and you have a serious chance that this begins to escalate at some point. And it's worth pointing out that the main intelligence director at the GRU uh, in Russia has been involved in irregular activities in Europe. It blew up a ammunition dump in, in the Czech Republic a few years ago. So it would not be out of the question to see activity in NATO at some point, including clandestine Russian activity. Right. And as you point out with Finland, if Finland becomes part of NATO, as it seems that's going to happen, NATO is going to have to fortify Finland because it does share a border with Russia. Right. They're going to have to forward deploy forces. I think there's the Finns already interested in purchasing uh, more armor and long range strike air defense, partly because this has been an important component of the Russian war in Ukraine so far. We can see how the Russians are fighting with battalion tactical groups. A lot of focus on what the Russians called a reconnaissance strike complex, which is standoff attacks, long range from artillery and from aircraft, as well as from vessels in places like the Black Sea. So if you're the Finns, you're going to be focused to a great extent on trying to shoot stuff like that down. An iron dome for Finland. Right. It seems like there's going to have to be a bunch of Iron Domes. Ukraine's going to need an Iron Dome. Finland's going to need an Iron Dome. It's inevitable, isn't it? The other part of this with Article 5 of the NATO Treaty is to what degree nuclear weapons play a deterrent role in deterring the Russians from attacking a NATO country. The problem with Finland and Sweden, for that matter, is until they are NATO countries, they are not formally protected by Article 5. Now, the good news, in a sense, is that the Russians are tied down pretty heavily in Ukraine right now. We've got roughly 92 battalion tactical groups. They're not doing particularly well. And so the idea that they'd open up another front against what would be a very tough Finland, I think, would be unlikely. Let's talk about the Eastern Front. Reports that we're seeing is, is that it's changing fast, the situation on the ground. What's your assessment? Well, I think what's worth noting is that the Russians have shifted, of course, from operating on multiple axes. They've got elements of the Western military district and Eastern military district and the Central military district focused on areas like Izium and south of Kharkiv. Uh, there's a, another element of the Southern military district, particularly the battalion tactical group level, focused on Eastern Donbass, so Donetsk and Luhansk. 
And then Southern Military District Forces and Airborne Groupings uh, focused on Mariupol and then pushing northwards up the Dnieper River and then also connecting areas of Crimea to Russia proper. So, Andrew, there's, there's a several hundred mile front now that extends just north of Crimea and cuts around like an arc Ukraine. What the Russians do have in those areas that they control is they're doing essentially alternative state building. We've seen them replace mayors, for example, and other government officials that were Ukrainian with Russian. They're flying the Russian flag in a number of areas. They've changed currencies to the ruble. So every indication in areas that the Russians control is that they are essentially annexing these areas. The issue, though, is I think with all of the weapons and more weapons and continuing weapons that the West is providing, more sophisticated drones, increasing numbers of the javelins and the stingers. In addition, we've seen main battle tanks now and lots of ammunition and, and help on the logistical side. And then intelligence, which we've already talked about, I think it's going to be really tough for the Russians to advance much deeper into Ukraine. So what we might end up seeing is something like a frozen conflict starting to form. The Russians, I think, are hoping that they could probably break through those southern military district forces and the airborne forces in the south. They can break through and surround Ukrainian forces essentially bottling them up. But unless they can do that, I think we may start to see essentially like World War I trench warfare in eastern Ukraine that may be tough for the Ukrainians to take back. In this case, it really makes the argument that we're in for, and the Ukrainians are certainly in for, a very long haul um, with Russia. Putin, as long as he's still standing, isn't going to back down. So when you talk about a frozen conflict, do you mean that this is just going to be a long, protracted battle where people get killed on both sides and nothing really changes? Yeah, or very little changes quickly anyway. I think the Russian hope, it looks like, with the types of forces they used and the disposition as they were looking for something closer to a blitzkrieg operation that overthrew the government in Kiev and decapitated the Zelensky government. That's not been the way this war has transpired. So I think in that case, what this may represent is what we've seen in various parts of 2014 to 2022, which is uh, there are periods where there may be ceasefires and there may be very limited kinetic activity fighting. And then there will be then a periods where the Russians try to push forward and take advantage of time to rearm and try to retake more territory, or the Ukrainians try to do the same thing, try to take back territory that they've lost, uh, like in Melitopol or in Mariupol down in the south, that the Russians are so inclined to, to, to use to connect Crimea with Russia. So that's what I see as, as more likely this kind of slow-moving battlefield that we don't see a lot of progress on a day-to-day -day basis, but may transpire over the next several months and possibly years. So how do you think this ends? Here's the challenge, is that on the one hand, the Russians moved in to Ukraine, my judgment, because their strategy of conducting an irregular campaign, they, they took Crimea, then they conducted an irregular campaign through Russian-backed separatists, got them some territory in, in the Donbass, but not they, they weren't able to expand much. 
So in 2022, they switched to a conventional invasion. And that's gotten them a little bit more. But this is much bigger, of course, than Ukraine. This is a big concern from the Russians about an expansion of NATO and a Ukraine that is more closely tied to the West economically, militarily, and diplomatically. Well, fast forward to today, and what has happened? We see a heavily armed Ukraine from the West. We see Zelensky talking to essentially every major European, U.S., Canadian Congress in session, multiple sides of the political aisle, and economically just is a ton of economic assistance, including promises of reconstruction. And when you add the NATO expansion element to this, that's an unacceptable situation for a Russia that is being pummeled in sanctions. So I, I don't see the Russians stopping anytime do, soon. Do they get more erratic because of all this? I mean, that's certainly possible. Uh, I mean, they've shown a lot of signs even this week of a lack of discipline. You have, you know, Sergei Lavrov making anti-Semitic comments and then Vladimir Putin having to apologize to the Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, today. You know, it, it just seems like they're, they're becoming more and more unhinged by the day. Well, yeah, and I think part of it is they are suffering extraordinary losses on the battlefield. But I would still say if you take a step back, you know, the Russians haven't lost, certainly publicly, the Chinese. It's 1.4 billion people. They still have the Indians roughly supporting the Russians. I mean, that's where the Indian military gets a bunch of its weapons from is the Russian military industrial complex. So it's not like the Russians have lost everybody. But still, I think when you lose these many people and part of the strategy is to continue to try to get domestic support and the way they're doing it is to demonize the Ukrainian government, which is led by a Jew as a Nazi regime, it's going to run into problems predictably with the Israelis. And really, it's not a credible accusation anyway. So, Seth, you mentioned how this is bigger than Russia and Ukraine even. What are the Chinese learning from this Russian operation? Well, I would say a couple of things the Chinese appear to be learning based on just some looks at translated Chinese press and some of the Chinese uh, journals that I've looked at. One is the Russians took a long time to move. They built up forces that were monitored by intelligence agencies and commercial satellite imagery. So by the Some of which we used. Some of which we used, some of which I used. And we used it on CNN. We used it in newspapers. And the challenge there is you lose the element of surprise. So I think one thing the Chinese appear to have learned, or at least taken away, is that if they're going to go, if they're going to move quickly, whether it's Taiwan or somewhere else, they're going to have to move fast. That's one. A second is just the importance from the military sphere of logistics, logistics, logistics. Any combat operation requires soldiers to, to get fuel resupplied, to get food and uh, blankets and ammunition resupplied. And if you can't resupply, then you run into the problems that the Russians have. You start running out of ammunition. You start running out of fuel for your tanks or your armored personnel carriers. If logistics break down, then the military breaks down. And so one important issue, I think, that the U.S. military spends a lot of time training, 
planning is how to continue to operate logistics in a contested environment. So that, I think, will be a big focus of Chinese efforts. Another one is going to be how do you find ways to insulate your economy from sanctions? One of the things that may have surprised the Russians and the Chinese can now see is this Western effort to band together and conduct what are now sustained sanctions against the Russian economy, and it's done serious damage. So what's your response if you're China? How do you insulate yourself from the economic effects of sanctions or try to impose many of those same costs on the US and and the West? And those are, from my perspective, some of the biggest lessons that I think the Chinese are looking closely at. Seth, finally, I wanted to ask you, with all of Russia's losses of people, of equipment, are they beginning to think about rebuilding their military? And if so, you know, are, are they learning lessons from this? Well, Andrew, we do know that over the course of the uh, Russian direct involvement in Syria, they started in the fall of 2015, and they continue to operate 2016 all the way up through 2022, is they learned. They got better. Now, that was mostly air and maritime forces. So this is now going to be a learning process for the ground elements, the maneuver forces. And I think what almost certainly they're going to learn is some of the same lessons I think the Chinese are taking away. One is if they do this again at some point, they've got to move with the with the element of surprise. They did not have that here. A second is they need to protect their logistics lines better than they did now, which is why the move on the southern and eastern front actually makes a lot more sense because they're not as exposed as they were in that 40-mile parking lot that we saw from Belarus down to down to Kyiv where there were Russian armored vehicles, tanks, towed artillery just sitting on roadways getting picked apart by the Ukrainians. And some of them were sitting there because they didn't have any fuel left. So fixing those logistics lines is important, which is why, you know, one of the things that's interesting is you look at the the Russian force posture now is they're backed up against Russia itself. So they got rail lines that come right up to Russian forces. And it's also why we're seeing the Russians target a lot of Ukrainian logistics. We've seen a stepped up attacks by the Russians against uh, Ukrainian railways and other infrastructure to target Ukraine's logistics. So I think these are a couple of the things that Russia may learn. Russia has a lot of conscripts in its military. The U.S. has moved to an all-volunteer force. What steps might Russia take to improve morale and readiness of an all-volunteer force? Or how do you at least change your active reserve conscript forces to make them more combat effective? Seth, as always, thanks for these tremendous insights. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 